Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam. We got a great episode coming up for you. I know it's been a couple weeks since we've had an episode, but I, I knew that our nation, uh, if you live in the United States, I know I have a lot of international listeners as well, uh, but there's, there's, we're going through a, a lot of turmoil and people need to process and heal. And uh, So I took it upon myself to take a sabbatical from the podcast, so you're welcome. Uh, I think that the world now is ready again to hear about gatekeepers and decision makers and artists and talent. And I, I mean, arguably, the world needs art more than ever. And so for this episode, I thought it would be a lot of fun. Alice Wetterland is a comic that I've known for a long time, and she's built a very nice career for herself. But she is passing through a gate that I think a lot of comedians aspire to, and that is the late-night TV show. Uh, she'll be doing a set on Conan that will be recorded and aired on Monday, the 28th of November, post-Thanksgiving. And so I wanted to get into the head of a comedian as they are about to as- ascend to this point in their career. So anyway, happy Thanksgiving. I know I'm very thankful to have you listening to this show. And for all the great feedback, please continue to leave reviews on iTunes, stars and Facebook things and all that. And if Andrew can just cue some music of thanks so that we have that sound effect that has been the bridge that gaps one episode to the next. I'd like to say thank you all so much for your continued listenage uh, to the show for forgiving me when I say words like listenage, uh, etc. You've been an important part of making this podcast what it is because after all, just like stand-up, it's all about connection and I feel like the wonderful and positive reviews that I get from all of you has given me the strength to get us through all the way to Thanksgiving. So have a wonderful feast, whether you're turkey or the stuffing. Go ahead and have a wonderful holiday. And we'll be back next week with a great episode featuring Margaret Cho, the comedy luminary. So get excited for that. Have a great holiday and enjoy this conversation with Alice. So to start this episode, uh, we will have a quick prayer. Okay. Uh, I'll let you lead it because you are the guest. Okay, perfect. Um, uh, So everybody's holding hands. You can't see this. You're at home. Um, Hail Satan. uh, You know, God of of money. No. uh, Is it, are you still going by Satan? What if my prayers were like... Just semantics, like, hey, so just want to say a prayer, a quick prayer to see, like, how you're going by, what you're going by now. Um, uh, yeah, thank you for this bounty um, of uh, just, you know, hatred. Uh, I love it. Um, this feels weird already. <laughs> People are just, this is what happens when you let Alice Wetterland talk unmitigated. Every word you just Shut said her was down. verbatim, written down. She's reading still right now. Shut her down. It's teleprompter. And I'm, and I'm announcing my candidacy, of course, for president. Well, well read. 2014, though. So oh. 
this is time machine style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Gatekeeper. Welcome. It's a podcast. That's why we're recording it into this audio machine <laughs> known mm-hmm. as a microphone. A bit of a yeah. Let's get started. Hi, welcome, Alice. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> you uh, you came running up the stairs. Bounding. Bounding. I do call it bounding. Thank yeah, you. I'm so excited to be here. Is why I bounded in. Um, I love you, Jamie, and I love your improv comedy club. Um, it's the best. I was fishing. Is there's another person here? Is it okay that we acknowledge? We, Andrew? we can acknowledge Andrew. Hi, there's another guy here. So He's Alice, not allowed to speak. I feel like I have a lot of power. I want to talk to you about a lot of things. I do too. But I was especially excited to talk to you because this week or next week you're doing a set on Conan. 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 Conan has a TV show. He's had it for many years. He got a show, and I got to. I, mean, I get to appear on it. And you're going to be doing five minute con- comedy set. I am doing five minutes. Yeah, times out are around five minutes. I just finished running it um, for the Booker, and uh, yeah, I'm very very excited about it. So this it. is your. Fr- you've done a couple of TV sets, but this is your first late night. This is my this first is late a, night it's set. It's a really exciting been, thing. Yeah, I've been toiling away, as they say, for a long time, and. Um, yeah, I, I've I've encountered, uh, you know, a lot of rigmarole and going back and forth with other bookers of other late night sets, and um, I'm really happy that I get to do my debut on Conan. But um, I think I, I'm happy that also it took so long, to be honest, because I learned a lot in the process of like what it takes to get into the position. And like different bookers have different pro- proclivities and. And a, a different way of doing things. And as a comedian, you don't know about any of that. So you come in and you're like, this is what it should be. I should be able to do a set. If you like it, you should put me on the show. And, of course, there's other factors. What are those other factors? Well, uh, as many people listening to this that are comedians might know, um, you can have like a dynamite five minutes, but getting that five minutes on a tape that is representative of what that set can do is like <laughs> absurdly difficult because inevitably and I, I don't I guess it's Murphy's law or whatever like there's I want scientists to study why this is true because it's that it's that uh consistent um when you try to get a tape a say a set unless you're like the kind of comedian that doesn't have that it's just like this you know I mean I I would say that a, a comedian with a lot simpler setups and just you know does the same thing every time you just tape it every time but like a lot of people are a little bit more conversational and you feed off the energy of the room that you're in and I've had I've had you know I've gone to a place specifically to tape a set and I get there and they're like we do our uh everybody's going without a mic it's kind of a cool way and I'm like perfect okay what Uh, show is that this is a show in the bay and uh and then I've got to another show and they're like they're primed they're ready we really want to help you get this tape um and there's a guy in the front who's just meowing at everyone. And we can't <laughs> kick him out. Uh, so, and and those are just the things that you know about ahead of time. Like halfway through, the, you're you're just amazed that taping five minutes. Like, why would a person heckle in the middle of it? It's almost the feeling of like knowing that it has to be put to tape. But then there's the other aspect of it where it's like when I go up on stage at, at a show in LA, I'm not doing clean. I'm not doing like a clean five minute set that I would do in a late night show. I'm doing like, I'm talking to the audience or I'm reacting to the news of the day or week or my life. I'm not doing the five minutes that I've been working on for three years, you know? So 
they sense that. An audience can sense when you're all of a sudden on stage. Like, there's like three people go up and they're like, uh, all right, give it up for that guy. And we're all talking about what's literally happening in the room. And then somebody comes up and they're like, glad to be here. Uh, you know, it's just like such a weird. And the audience is like, why are they doing this? So they react to it. So it's often just hard to get people to laugh. So wh- where did you get the perfect five-minute tape that got you booked? Actually, I got it by um, doing headlining at the punchline and stringing together the audio bits of my jokes that I had throughout my set. Because I'm not good enough to do... I mean, also, I'm not... I don't, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get to the point where I can just nail that five minutes on whatever... But I'm, I'm not there yet, and so that's what I did. I just took it out of and it, you know, each joke from each set. You know, I think I used two different tapes. How did he even get on J.P. Buck? J.P. Buck? On his radar. Um, <laughs> that, was the other, that was the other problem, uh, was the way I got on his radar. Because J.P. has been doing booking Conan for a really long time. And that unfortunately did not work in my favor because he saw me like six years ago when I was opening for my ex Andy Haynes when he was preparing his set so he saw me in a really bad position I didn't know he was there I wasn't doing well and I wasn't doing jokes I would do in front of a booker like that so I just I think that that is not helpful it cemented me in his mind as somebody who's like not ready to do Conan you know and um I don't know. If, I'm sure he would disagree and probably say that he liked it or whatever. But, um, but I feel like that kind of thing is like, that's the lesson you learn. Like, don't go up and don't go out, out for opportunities you until know, you're ready. Until you're ready. And if you get, you know, there's, it's hard because you get opportunities and what are you going to say no? But at the same time, like, it should remove the pressure to get those opportunities. So how do you think you got back into his good graces? Or, I mean, he's been trying to get a set together for me for like for like so long and it's all it is is like he has specific he's like I like these jokes you know do these jokes and then I you know and then I'll just go to Toronto for three months and I won't be able to get you know or I won't prioritize it or whatever because it honestly I will say a lot of it is me just feeling like the process is so incredibly daunting and I have other things going on and other ways that I'm making money. And stand-up has always been like a release valve for me. That I'm like, honestly, do I really need to do a late-night set? Because I just don't want to go through the going out every single night to try to get this tape and then having shit get messed up. I just want to do stand-up and not worry about it. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is is that I didn't prioritize it enough. Um, you know. Did you and, grow up uh, like with any like a dream of doing that? When you got into stand-up, it's such a um, like a threshold for, you know, you're breaking through. And you've done a lot of things that a lot of comics haven't done. Right. TV yeah, and, and were you a new face? Yeah, I was. Congrats. Three years on ago. That. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, but that late night set is like, it's, it's this thing that people hold it's on an, a pedestal. It's an accolade and it's a victory lap. It does very little for your actual money-making career. Um, and the credit lasts like two weeks because there's new comedians on the Conan every week or so. And, and, and so it isn't really um, something that – it's something you focus on and then you pass like a finish line and you probably forget about. So, you know, I, I can't speak to it because I haven't done it yet and I'm so excited. Because also the other thing about Conan is like I didn't grow up like worshipping James Corden 
Mm-hmm. You know, like Conan is no, like Conan is like to to me growing up, like Conan is, and I've already met him, like because he produces the show that I'm on in in that we that People of Earth uh, on TBS. So, uh, so yeah, I mean to be a part of that is just something that it's just like a badge on your vest that you want. Um, whether or not that actually means something to you as a comedian later on, like if it, if that badge just legitimizes me. I don't know if it does. I don't really I think, think that's what it's about. It's not obviously what it used to be, where the Tonight Show could make your career in one yeah. night. But I still think, and even you know, being a booker of a club and yeah. been well, in this you know. world, yeah. I still, that Conan credit, mm-hmm. it means something to me. Yeah. And I think, uh, like I said, it's not what it used to be. No. But it's still yeah. a major awesome thing. That's right. Well, and JP breaks people that are deserve to be broken all the time, and that's something that was is hard for me because I feel like I've seen people come up that started after I started well after I started and like have and just have gone on Conan and that to me was like that's the kind of thing where it'll drive you crazy if you let it but now that and even me where like I'm making money from this like this is my living that I make and I'm lucky enough to actually do that and some of these people have day jobs still and like but I'm resenting them because of this, which is just like, that's how twisted this all can, can get if you let it. And I think that's kind of the message I try to send to people is like, don't let it. Because if you get Conan, if you get a set, a late night set, it's great. And you should use it as a victory lap and you should use it to, you know, legitimize what you do and, and have it be like, have it recharge your Duracell, but don't make it this thing where it's like, if you don't get it, you don't deserve to be doing this with the rest of us Mm -hmm. because that's not what it's about at all. That's not what it's there for. And I really don't think like that's the spirit of Conan in general, you know? Um, For me, Conan as a person and Conan as a show is something that has always made me feel good about myself and is like the anti-cynicism, you know? It's there to make people feel like people who are engaged and people who are smart and intelligent make those people feel like they have a place in the world. I mean, it really is that big to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't grow up wanting to do stand up per se, but I grew up with comedy and that's what it means to me. So you're doing it next week. I'm doing it next week. Like, are you nervous for that? <laughs> if we last another week. <laughs> that's true. In the world. Mm. Wouldn't that be great? I've waited so long to do it, and then it's the just like explodes. the world explodes. <laughs> well, okay. Or maybe it'll explode right after you're done. Oh, be the last maybe I'll explode it. Maybe. Maybe my set will explode. I mean, you've been doing stand-up for how long? Um, nine years. Eight years. Sorry, nine eight years. eight years, because I moved here in 2011. I think it's like eight years. So arguably thousands of sets. Yeah. Is this one, like, are you extra Never nervous for it? Never um, bummed. I'm not extra nervous, and I'm, that's another reason I'm so thankful that it took so long. Because, like, I know I'm ready, finally, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't wait to get at that crowd and have fun with them. And that would not be a year ago, Alice Wetterland, you know? I would be absolutely pooping my pants. Can I say shit? You can say shit. Um, shit. But we don't encourage it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not as nervous as I would have been a year ago, thank God. I, I think I'll be able to be present and be there. But when you get as nervous as you do to do these tape sets, sometimes you become so uh, like you can't your 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 biology takes over. So you can't even be there when it's happening. You're just like, you know, on the verge of barfing the whole time. So I'm excited. I'm hope I'm hope it, I'm hopeful that I won't 
have that energy. So you've done two sets though for TV. So Adam Devine's House Party. Yes. And then the UCB show on CISO. The UCB show on CISO, So yeah. how, how, what were those experiences? <laughs> the UCB show on CISO, I was like, I don't like my posture or my arms. That's like <laughs> crazy, the b- bullshit that women do to themselves. Um, I, what was your posture? I don't know, I was like so hunchy and slouchy. Because I think that's my energy on stage is like very dry and very slouchy and sort of like, I don't care. And uh, yeah. Uh, so I didn't like that set. I didn't like the set I did on, on CISO at all. I felt really, um, mm, I felt boxed in and weird about it. It didn't, I had, a, <laughs> my boyfriend at the time didn't come to this show and I asked him to and he said he would, then he didn't show up and I was just kind of in a weird <laughs> mood about it. Um, That'll get you slouching. So, you know, stand up has always been a refuge for me, like a thing where it's, if my entire life falls apart, it's there. And, you know, uh, about three years ago, um, it just started not being like that. There had been p- places in stand-up where it didn't feel that way. I don't know why, and I, it still hasn't completely changed, but um, I remember going on stage and having my entire life crumbling and, like, being there and feeling connected and not feeling happy, per se, but just feeling things and like feeling like I I have a reason to exist and there's something for me to be doing and these people are here and we're both here at this moment in time and nothing else matters and like the way people talk about like you know when you're on the ice or whatever I don't know like and and so there's been and I think because like once you start using it to make money it like it's that gets a little messed up with so I always tell people who are not doing it yet to make money like please just make that last as long as you can I mean, the they last are. Thing that any of them want to do. They are doing that already because they're not good. But um, just kidding. Uh, but I, 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 I think that's important. I mean, if you can find a moment in your in your stand up career where you can stop obsessing about getting on certain shows and getting, you know, a tape together and getting a manager, if you can stop thinking about all those things that are must dos on your to do list and just go out and have have fun doing comedy like you know that should that should be the thing that is most important at all times because if you're not having fun in the very first place there's a lot that's going to make it not fun later on so you need do you think you live that until you hit those because i think every young comic is like once i get a manager i'll be happy once i have an agent Mm -hmm. once i get the tv set once i get this i know i'm i'm about to get a tv set and i'll let you know but i'm pretty sure the answer is no you won't ever be happy if that's the if that's what you're looking for the only thing that you're gonna that's gonna make you happy is to be connected in the moment and talking to, doing your job on stage, which is to be like speaking your truth and having the delight of a room full of people validating and feeling validated themselves. Like that's the only that's the joy. That's where the joy is. Everything else is just bullshit. I've always I've always said that um you know this idea of connection versus validation. Mm-hmm. But the way you just said is very interesting. Like there can be validation as long as it's mutual. Mm-hmm. No, I feel validated because they're, I'm saying my thoughts. This is what I always say. What's so great and hardcore about stand-up is like every other art form, you have something to hide behind. You know, you paint, put a painting in a gallery and you're, if, if I know Sean O'Connor doesn't think stand-up's an art form, uh, <laughs> shout out to Sean. But if it is an art form, it's the most personal because if an audience is there and you say your idea, it's your idea and you're saying it, and they're right there. There's no later on review. 
you know, uh, the way it's supposed to function, if it's not a taped set, like you're there, they're there, and they'll tell you yes or no whether or not they think it's good. And it often has to do with whether or not they like you and whether they sense if you like yourself. And it's so you're putting yourself out there and that's the most exposed you can possibly be. You know, it's your mind and your ideas out there. And I think that's what I like about it. That's why I find it so exciting. So when you have a set where you don't feel you have that connection, Mm -hmm. does that still destroy you? Did it ever destroy you? Yeah, of course. You know, you get more of the opposite of validation from standup than you do the actual validation from Mm -hmm. it. And it's that, it's that like 20% of the time that you feel that, that keeps you going for the rest of the time. But you know, that sounds like it's, I know everybody's like, Oh, you got to be a psycho to do this. And all the attention is on you. But like, I think that, that what I'm saying is that it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity for communication just because the audience isn't like speaking back to you. They are speaking back to you. Their, their job is, is to relax and you're creating that relaxation. You're creating those little neural pathways for them. You're doing, and you know, and it, and sometimes it doesn't feel like work and that's what's amazing, but it is work. And you, you know, sometimes it does feel like work and they're still laughing, but you have to keep work. I was in Salt Lake City and I had three pretty good sets and then I had one that went off and it was because I have a joke. I think it was because I got political and I have, I do always talk about politics in my sets because that's me. I'm just a political person. And I was talking about this, you know, the idea of like football and how they are like supporting breast cancer awareness. And there was like some Ben Roethlisberger apologists in the audience and they just, I got booze and, you know, people were just getting really tense. And when part of the audience gets tense, the rest of the audience is like, you know, they're, they don't know how to feel because some of them are on dates with those guys, you know? And, what I got to do is feel like I, I knew exactly, you know, there was, it was a little scary, but I, I, I got to feel like there's a reason that I'm here. I, you know, when I was like, you guys know you paid to be here, right? You know, and this guy's like, oh, I was invited. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. I was too, <laughs> but by someone more important than you, you know, like <laughs> I'm here and I'm here for some of these people that, that want to, that want to think about these things. And if you, that makes you uncomfortable, like that's, you can leave, you know, I'll that's at any moment that you can walk the fuck out. And a lot of these people in this room would feel a lot more comfortable if you did, but I get to be there and kind of arrange all that. And so the fact that those people were reacting that way, I had the ability and I think the experience to dig in my heels and go, Oh, I'm sorry. And, and really go, well, this is really how I feel. You want to fucking, we can do this right now. Like we can talk about exactly how I feel about this and go even further. And it's still going to be fun for those people people are still going to be laughing at this point and that's going to piss you off so much and it's going to make those people feel fucking safer. And like that is something that so rarely happens because it's not your job to like change people's mind. You know, I realize that I talk about politics, but I also realize it's not my job to come in and, you know, uh, make everybody re-register their party, you know, affiliation. But I do have to talk about where my where my ideas come from because I have said, to be inside yeah. of myself. And those people that are on the date with that mm-hmm. Roethlisberger, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the opportunity to change those minds. Like yeah. you said, you don't do. But like I think seeing 
huma- humanity yeah. in, in those real moments is what has the power to change those people. Maybe, but moreover, like the people who are there and, and, and I'm speaking to the, because I've had so many women come up to me and like, thank God you talked about that because I'm so sick of going to these comedy clubs where I feel like uh, there's a guy on stage and this happens so often in clubs where there's a guy on stage and he's talking about his ideas and he's not talking about human ideas. He's talking about guy ideas and he's talking to the guys and the women are there to kind of like have a good time or feel what they really feel which is alienation and like this none I don't relate to any of this shit because it's like from a person's perspective who's trying to hold on to their fucking power Mm -hmm. so I am there and like the fact is like a lot of men are laughing at the same time and like there's this energy that I think women especially are getting from my set that makes them feel like, oh, I get to be a person right now. I don't have to think about, you know, because she's talking about these things and she's opening up these nuts for me. Like I get to think about myself as a person in the world, you know, and have these ideas. And that helps people to keep going on those dates with those people who maybe don't believe the same thing, which I, you know, not that I'm like... (laughs) pro people making more babies in you know middle america stop it but <laughs> well, you, i mean at what point and obviously it's it is i believe it is an art form that um as you grow you evolve in these ways but i'm assuming the first few years you didn't think about the power of this what you're doing on stage and that you could connect with people in this way like oh i totally did because i watched people it do it you know, and I don't, I don't do what I'm saying that these people do. I'm like, I mean it. Like I know that I'm not that good yet. Um, I want to get that good and that's why I keep doing it. But you know, I, I've seen sets by, um, there's like those transformative sets, you know, like I, I remember seeing Paul F. Tompkins when I, when I first started, I saw Sarah Silverman in like, I feel like 2003 you know in in New York and I didn't it's like one of those things where you go and you're like I didn't know you could have ideas and be that person that she's being right now you know and so and it's that like delight that comes from seeing someone be a thing that you didn't know could exist um that that completely, and then going against what everything else is all the time, like being this like weird, like Paul F. Tompkins did that for me. Like he, the way he is and the way he talks about things, I'm like, oh my God, this is like a person who is saying mm-hmm. words. And that changed so much for me about what, what kind of performer you could be, you know, which is why I think like whatever you want to call it, like alt comedy or whatever, like is so important because we, you know, we have to mess around and play around and try to be, be a version of ourself that feels the most authentic so that other people can see that and go, Oh, that's on a stage. Like that's something that like we can all like tune into. Um, well, I, I think, think that's think what forward things. examples right now, but well, and not just, I mean that, and that's, I think I had that same epiphany when I really started getting more into stand up mm. and mm-hmm. those same people mm-hmm. inspire me, Paul Tompkins mm-hmm. um, and the conversational tone of it. Yeah. Yeah. And Maria Bamford also, like I never, and Jackie Cation is, is another example. Like I saw them in, at comics in New York before it closed. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like the, I, the per, a person like inhabiting all these psychologies and also Jackie, like just being this, oh God, cause I'm from the Midwest. So like seeing people be from the Midwest, you know, like have that was, I actually don't know if Cation is from the Midwest or she's she just has like a Midwest Wisconsin, I think. she's from, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, and Maria's from Minnesota where I'm from. So, um, 
yeah, I don't know. It's just seeing something like that reverberate out. But but then that not only can you influence comics, but I think audiences who go to a comedy club, especially right. with this, I'm going to see joke, joke, joke. Yeah. You know, I think having a balance between I have material, but I'm willing to be vulnerable. Yeah. Changes people's perspective of what comedy and stand-up can be. Right, right. Which is great that you're doing that. Right. Well, I don't think we know what stand-up is yet. I mean, as far as like, if you do want to call it an art form, as far as art forms go, you know, storytelling is like the original art form, but like, are we, you know, we're not doing storytelling shows because we want to perform someplace that's not NPR. Like (laughs) we, like we don't know what this art form can do yet or where it can go. And, um, it's just a young form. So, uh, so that's why I think the pressure is on all of us to like continue to make it this, to, to make it a thing that pushes boundaries. You know, I like, (laughs) I think Bill Burr has a bit about like alt comics it's like the same thing but with an easel mm. <laughs> he's taking a shot at Dimitri Martin but um th- and that's the kind of com- like and I so I'm not talking about like adding in artsy props but like really having ideas that are um like Bill is a really good example like Bill Burr has ideas that are strange and hit a lot of like he he oscillates between somebody being like who is like a Fox News watcher and somebody who has like these really weird like fringe ideas and he's the, they're all centered in one human being, you know, so he can reach a lot of people mm-hmm. with that because he's just being exactly who he is, you know, the closest version. And I don't agree with everything he says, but like, I know that he believes it. I have no doubt about that, you know, and that's something I can appreciate because it's not easy to believe the things he says and talk about that. That's important. You know, I think people think that it's easy to just be a white guy. It's not easy to be anybody, you know? Well, and like any art form too, it's um, you know, some stand-ups are artists and some are not at all. Right, right, yeah, that's understand. Yeah, some people make money. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes you can do both at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And not to say that you shouldn't you shouldn't make money. I think that people need to pay their comedians as much as they can, and more shows do in LA now. I have a. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'll just launch into this. We'll see where it goes. I have a question for you, Alice. Yeah. Do you like Radiohead? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I liked Kid A. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they're okay. They're a stadium. I saw them one time live. Maybe that's what informed my... I don't hate them. I just was like, oh, come on, man. Because like, you have a joke about... Yeah. I, I think it was a date. And I've mentioned it a couple times because... And I, I'm obsessed with music. Mm-hmm. And I can be the most pretentious music yeah. fan ever. Uh-huh. But you and I think... Maybe it was Jonah Ray. Mm-hmm. And he, maybe he's Led Zeppelin as like... <laughs> <laughs> to me, like Led Zeppelin and Radiohead, like yeah. even as a pretentious music fan, like right. they're still. So I never knew in that joke yeah. if you were actually saying Radiohead's bad, or if you were being ironic. No, it's like it's it's like Bernie Sanders is great, but his like fans, you know, and I'm not even saying supporters, like fucking Bernie fans are not great, you know? These people who are like political tourists who came in and are like, this magical wizard is going to speak for me, and if he doesn't, I'll decline from doing anything ever again forever. Um, But are Radiohead fans, like, obnoxious? Like, yeah, because there's just so many of them that they have to be obnoxious. I think because Radiohead is like... I also know people who love Radiohead that's like those people that love love it, and then, like, it's their their whole... Like, they like music but it only is Radiohead. 
Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's a, a type of Radiohead fan where it's like they can't hear anything bad about Radiohead. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. If, <laughs> that's kind of one of those jokes where it's like, can I articulate exactly what it is about Radiohead fans that is toxic? <laughs> no. I, I always just thought it was like as a reference point because. But the audience can get it, so. Well, they're, they're going to have a, a reaction. Yeah. But my old reaction was always like, wait, is Radiohead not cool? <laughs> no, because <laughs> you hear the audience laughing. But it's like, I think lumping in, like, I just, there's, I think I thought of it because I was talking to some girlfriends. Like, you go on a date with a guy, and, and if the guy, like, loves, like, is like, oh, I love Radiohead. You're like, I'm out, you know. You're just like, no, can't do it. Because there's something about that guy where it's like, oh, you're, like, keyed into a certain type of, like, music that is you've sort of like decided that this is your music for all time and like there is never going to be a bad thing that comes out you know what i mean like kind of closing doors to other types of culture well here i'm gonna expand your brain a little bit okay i love radiohead oh well God. i mean i don't have like like the last album well we're not two. on a date so i can no, continue doing the podcast but i also love a ton of other music that i think yeah You'd be pretty impressed by. (laughs) I'm not impressed by people liking music, by the way. That never is going to be a thing. I mean, I've dated a stack of records before, so. I just hate that if, uh, like, I went on a date with a girl and she was like, so do you like Radiohead? What? And I was like, yeah. Oh, my God, That I could be, like, ruled out immediately? I need to take responsibility for that cultural zeitgeist. (laughs) If I'm turning, if I'm doing that, ugh. I'm, if there's like a Radiohead chastity belt movement in the Tinder community, I am pretty <laughs> proud. You got to understand that, you know. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's so weird specific. All right. Well, no judgment. No judgment. No. No judgment. Like, like what you like. I'm here I'm, to say I'm, I think it's okay to like Radiohead. You know. Andrew I'm, left the room and he like 20 yeah. minutes ago and we're still talking about Radiohead. This is the thing. So this is, this is how Radiohead works. It gets in the conversation and it does not leave. Mm-hmm. This, this is what I'm talking about, you know. I mean, kid A... It was one of the most iconic albums of all time. It was an iconic album. I loved it, you know, but it was, I was in college. It was like 2003, four. I was just out of college. I'm very young, actually. So I was, was an adult. 2021. Where were you on September 11th? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, I was in Brooklyn. Yeah. Let's skip past that. I don't yeah. even know if we keep that in the Are you in interrogating me? No, I don't know. I've never <laughs> asked What if that. I was like, this was my hearing? This is the last <laughs> podcast that, that would be right. talked about on. So maybe we keep it in just to keep listeners on their toes. Yeah. All right. You never know, listeners. So other TV things. Other TV things. You've been in shows um, such shows. as People of Earth. People of Earth. Silicon Valley. Silicon Girl Code. Silicon Valley. Girl Code. What is this always uh, something you wanted to do? No. Just, no. no. Is it something you want to do now? It is. I, w- I wanted to act when I was really young, like I was in eighth grade or something, and I uh, started doing plays, and I went to a special school, like a theater. It was a public school that had a good theater program, and my mom encouraged it, but then when I decided I didn't want to do it anymore because I kept trying out and for plays, and they never gave me a call back, I, even then, I was, like, obsessed with injustice. I was like, this is... I knew something, and I still believe that there was some weird, like, nepotism thing going on because they were... Minneapolis has a very like um, avid children's theater pro- program. Mm. Like, and there's like a place called the Guthrie that has a children's theater, and like people become actors in Minneapolis, and they start really young. Like, it's like a mini um, theater world. So, um, I was not connected to that world, and I felt like I had to be to get in 
you know, and I, I just, I, I also felt like the theater kids in that were in the, like, I just didn't think they were funny and I thought they were <laughs> lame and just jazz hands or whatever. So lame I was four like, year old. I had an, no, this is in high school, but I was like, had an immense chip on my shoulder and I was like, I'm better than these people. Like, I don't need to be a part of this. So I quit <laughs> forever, you know, and Do then you have regrets I, about that. Yeah, I mean, it was like me being entitled and a brat, you know, and I couldn't just keep showing up. And my mom was just like, I, she didn't want me to be an actor. So she was just like, OK, that's fine. We don't have to do that. You can do something else. And I went to art school. And then uh, five years in New York, I just didn't do anything. Like I didn't know what to do with my BFA. So I, you know, I worked in like boutiques and I did textile design for a while and graphic design for a while. Um, and then one day, um, a friend of mine who's a fashion designer, Samantha Pleat, plug in it. Pleat? Pleat. That's P-L-E-E-T. Um, very... Uh, I know. Apropos. Uh, apropos, but um, also serendipitous. Serendipitous. Possibly. Yeah. Is it her real name? Who knows? So she did a like a fashion presentation and had a bunch of her friends be wearing the clothes. And she actually hired like a real director. And I had this epiphany and I was doing, I was modeling or whatever. And I, you know, doing my best version of that. And I felt like the camera and I was like, I know what this, I just know what this is. I know, I know what this is. And, and, and I felt like I could do it. And I, a friend of mine was like, you want to take this UCB class? And, and I just did it. And then thing like things happened very quickly after that. I, not for me career wise, but like, I just, for me, all the pieces came together. I started doing stand-up right th- uh, two years into that, and I, um, it was just completely, like, I was where I wanted to be. I didn't want to leave UCB. I didn't want to... I wanted to be at comics every single night and doing doing as many open mics as possible, and I just fell in love with it, and and ever since then, you know, it was kind of all I wanted to do, and then I got a... Um, my first piece of, like, real career validation came from a, an agent in... New York who books people for commercials like he's a commercial agent and he responded to me in a class and he started sending me out and I got and I got work from it so that enabled me to like live and do it for a while um so yeah and so these other opportunities that have come up these other shows um so you have fun with it and you just you're open-ended towards where your career can take you but is stand-up still at the core of it or I think so I mean because it all comes back to this ability to be, you know, I've, I, you know, I've always wanted to act. I wanted to, you know, um, uh, I wanted to do theater, but when I realized what stand up is and what it could be and, and how, when I started really watching stand up for the first time, like as a, as a, a budding performer, it, it, it was something clicked and I, and I just was like, this is something that you don't, I don't need money for, you know, it's good to pay our performance. I think we should, like I was saying before, but like, I will do this for free. I will pay to do it and I will never stop, you know, because it's, I, I just somehow like, it's never going to stop being challenging, you know, it's never going to be boring to me. I mean, it might be, but like, even that is going to be its own like threshold to break through. So you mentioned this a couple of times, but like, um, you seem to have a vision of a future for stand-up that we don't even know yet. Um, <laughs> do you have any ideas of like where it could evolve to? Um, Is there any? I don't know. I mean, when 
I don't know. Like I lasers. Like, when I when I talk to people who don't know what stand up like what it is and they don't do it and the way that they think about it, like like somebody was like, do like does any like if you're performing, does another comedian ever like not like what you're saying and then come up on stage and start doing their own stand up like in in like knock you out of the I'm like whoa no but like whoa you know like that would be amazing so <laughs> death match like just <laughs> that's so interesting right to imagine and then oh i was listening to the jackie and Lori podcast and jackie cation was talking about how she was opening for maria and somebody came up to maria after the show and was like you are so great like i love it and then turned to jackie and was like you should also do comedy like she knew that she had opened for her, but she didn't understand that like the headliner is the only one. She thinks the headliner is the only one doing comedy. I don't know. It's like so that person's just a glorified <laughs> host. I don't yeah, know, like, yeah, like a like I work here, like a long-winded <laughs> host or something, um, master of ceremonies. Like um, I don't know. Like I just think that we have like it's it's a it's an art form that people I think apply lots of rules to and and when the rules get broken it's exciting so I mean I saw this I saw Mark Marin go up in like 98 or something like that in New York um I don't think I didn't move there yet no maybe it was like maybe it was 2000 because I, I think I had just arrived and like he he was railing he was just going on this kind of a rant about about Republicans and there was two Republicans in the front row and he just stopped doing his set and he just started talking to them about facts and like yelling at them and he was so angry and my friend who I was with was laughing so hard because of the fact that he was like breaking the rules of like what this is supposed to be like he's paid to make people laugh and he's literally just abandoning it and it's funny to watch somebody just like fucking fall out of what they're like just become insane and enraged. It's like funny, you mm -hmm. know, and, and it's so inappropriate. Um, so I hate when people say Trump is good for comedy um, because Trump is good for nothing. Mm. But there is um, a moment in history where hopefully people are waking up uh, to a reality that a lot of people have been already living in. And we can at least use some of that energy to create the, the, the art that we need to make. I mean, I, I think there's a place for place for stand up in that. I think there's a place for everything in that. And yeah, I don't know. I'm well, maybe what you're talking about too is like the sense of discovery when you go to UCB for the first time mm -hmm. or, and you know, maybe living in this world, we mm -hmm. take for granted that like, Oh, we all know comedy. Right. We've all been to shows, right. but for most people, they, yeah, they know a stand-up show that they go to once every three years. Yeah. And so to enlighten people to the shows that we know where right. you could see a comic like Mark Maron or anyone just rail against. Uh, right, right. Um, and even variety and things that aren't going to make you bull over laughing. But right. there's so many different types of comedy and communication. There's also like, there's also like if you really, if like, I, <laughs> this is obnoxious, but like I, I think this is a podcast for people that are students of stand-up. Like, if you really watch a, a stand-up that you like, and, like, Chris Rock is one of my favorite comedians of all time. I, he's, like, top three, no no question. Um, like, if you watch him and what he does and the moment that he kind of became Chris Rock, what he started, just bodily language on the stage, like, what kind of... Uh, like, he, he, he doesn't stand in one place. He doesn't, you know... 
he's not a relaxed energy. And what he really does is you can see that he's so confident and, and is so, he's so, he's so at like of one mind with his audience. They're so there with him that he actually is like, he's back and forth in front of them. Like when you see like that, 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 that energy of like, um, I don't know. He's like, it's like there's a barrier between him and the audience and he's stalking it and he's like coming back and forth like they're, and they're completely, they're delighted beyond belief because they're totally at his mercy and he has this, you know, it's almost like he's going to come out and get them, you know, Mm -hmm. with his like, with his words and his ideas and that is such an interesting, um, new way. I think it's new, you know, I think it's, I think that's a groundbreaking way of, of, of having a relationship with your audience because how you, you think that that kind of aggressive thing would put people off, but it actually, because he's such a skilled standup and performer, it actually makes them even more relaxed mm-hmm. and even more willing to just let go. Cause you see people in his audience and people are just like letting go completely. I mean, they're like in a warm bath of what he's doing, you know, <laughs> it's jokes and it's like that kind of when I watch stuff like that I'm like that makes me believe that there's like new new ways that we can you know well I think George Carlin comes to mind because mm-hmm, he talks mm-hmm. about that in his book is that power you have to connect with an audience at that mm-hmm, level and they mm-hmm. have to listen to you yeah 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 and well they 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 can they can turn off they have to listen to you because they're there but then I've had it I've had situations where especially early on when I didn't know what the fuck I was doing and not that I do now, but like I notice that part of their mind will turn, oop, part of their mind will turn off because they're, they're judging you because everybody who comes on stage has an, has a, an appearance and what people have been used to seeing in the past is like a bearded plaid. white, you know what, you know what I mean? Or like a guy who looks like a bro or whatever with a, with a leather jacket on. They're used to seeing a guy like that. And, uh, and now that women are more, you know, are doing stand up a lot more, it's a lot easier for like a woman to get on stage. But it used to equate it with being a woman on stand up is like kind of having a cast on your leg. Like you have to address it. Like you can't get on stage and just start saying your mind, speaking your mind. But there's a window at the very beginning of your set where you're like, they're 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 like seeing all your items of clothing. Oh, she is she slutty? Is she uh, nebbish? You know, is she like a Kristen shawl? Is she? They're trying to categorize you into what they know of already, and they're that window. You, you your job in that moment is to get inside and like not let them get there yet. You have to show them who you are as quickly as possible. So your opener is really important there because you need to. They need to know. They need to not be judging you and listening to your ideas first before they. You know look at your clothes and like so as a woman it's like since there was only like t- four different people that women had seen perform stand-up at that point when I started it, it was like harder and now you know it's getting easier because of all the women that are doing stand-up um but that kind of a thing like they don't have like they've you know if they if they've if they've judged you and you're not fitting that that role that cookie cutter like they, they don't have to listen they might not be listening to you they're kind of bored you know you can watch the minds wander in mm-hmm. your crowd all the time and that's because you have a job to do and you haven't done it, you know? So Alice, we must. I mean, flashing back to the, the first couple of years doing stand-up, is there anything that you wish you knew from the beginning? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but as a final piece of advice or thoughts for young stand-ups or artists on, and how to approach those, the first couple of years of any artistic pursuit? Um, watch watch people more don't go to open mics it's like ten, the tendency is to go to open mics and talk in the back and I you know one reason 
to do open mics is to go see your friend. It's hard to get out of bed and or off work and then have the energy to go to an open mic. Um, but you know, there's a reason really good standups still go to open mics. Like you, you know, there, there, it's a useful place and like watch other people bomb. Just watch, watch comedy period. Like watch people do great stuff, but don't only watch that. Don't only like stop texting or talking to your friends when you see somebody doing really well, watch people bomb because you know, they're making mistakes that you're making. No question about it. And you, won't figure out how not to make those mistakes unless you see people do it over and over again and uh or see how to you know like they're they're manipulating the room in the opposite way that they want to be manipulating it and if you watch them do that and make those mistakes it helps you to re- you know figure out what your what your tools are in your tool bag you know that's great advice and you've been a great guest thank you very much you've been a great host so you're gonna be on conan what's the date um next monday so the 28th yeah monday the 28th awesome so hopefully this comes out before then and I, it's I'm, possible i'm, I'm the oh, worst well. <laughs> i just i'm like i hi like and everybody's like whoa thought this girl was had her head on straight but. well good luck to you thank you very 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 much you're I'm, gonna kill I'm it excited. and I'm it's the first of what will be many sets oh thank you and, well. like, and oh and so um social media and all that oh alice wetterland uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm, Snapchat. And if they put that into Google, it'll like put results. If they put it into Google, God help them. Great. Well, um, I will end as I always do by saying work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. I'm Jamie Flam. I'm the gatekeeper. Thanks for listening. Bye. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.